Hello and welcome to the Gladstones Land podcast from the National Trust for Scotland. Episode 7, Conservation and Painted Ceilings. Well, hello. Good morning. Um, uh, we are back and we're here. <laughs> we are indeed, uh, We are yes. indeed back, yes. <laughs> And this, uh, welcome to the Gladstones Land podcast. Uh, I'm, I'm Thomas. I'm Kate. And we're here again to have another... Uh, ramble. A little <laughs> ramble, a good discussion about um, some Renaissance Scottish history. Today, I think particularly we're looking at... Um, painted ceilings and also sort of the conservation side of things. Yes, that's right. In the, the For the last few episodes, we've been going through some of the historical topics that, um, that Gladstone's Land likes to talk about. This episode, we're going to take a step back um, and, and, and look, at, uh, look at it from a slightly different point of view. Uh, namely, we're going to look a little bit more about what the National Trust does here. Um, and I suppose some of our best-selling points within the property as well, yes. which is our painted ceilings. So, so yes, that's right. One of the uh, one of the the most famous things about Gladstone's Land, and certainly what you note, or what various authors note when Gladstone's Land is mentioned, uh, as it is in a number of older guidebooks and histories of Edinburgh, are these painted ceilings. Mm-hmm. Now we have discussed them very briefly before, but could you just give our our listeners a uh, a sense of what they are. Yes, of course. So we have three painted ceilings um, in Gladstone's land. Um, two of them are on general display to the public. Um, they are all painted around 1620, and we know that because the one on the second floor actually has a date on it in a couple of places. Uh, now, these painted ceilings were very fashionable in Scotland around this period, so they are known as the Scottish Renaissance style they're painted in, um, and there are a lot of them from this period uh, between about 1540 and 1640 they are the very height of fashion and people are putting them in expensive um, buildings and buildings with um, wealthy people living in them Um, and actually a surprising number of them have survived there are several to be found around Edinburgh Um, there's one in Riddles Court just opposite us there's an absolutely fabulous one in the John Knox house which is very bawdy Um, there's a lot of naked islanders and a hermaphrodite devil and all sorts up there lobster Uh, and there's one in the Museum of Edinburgh as well but the fact that we have three um, and all seem to have been painted at the same time by the same person um, is quite unusual and makes us quite unique particularly that they've survived in this sort of tenement townhouse that we have and they're painted on the beams as well isn't it Mm -hmm. you've got a wooden if you like a, a wooden ceiling and then there are lots of beams quite close together this a square ridged effect mm-hmm. along the ceiling, all painted in very bright colours. So originally they would have been very bright. Um, you get a little bit of a sense of what they'd have looked like on our first floor. The colours have survived better there, but they were obviously would have been a lot brighter originally. They would have been actually a little bit gaudy to our eyes, I think. Mm-hmm. They would have been, um, yeah, very, very cheerful. Um, and our three ceilings are covered with um, a lot of fruit and flowers. Um, And particularly on the first floor, um, it's a lot of exotic fruit. Um, So that would have been the most most high status um, apartment in the building. And those exotic fruits are things that would have been very expensive to buy. They would have all been imported. And so um, to have served them to your guests, to have eaten them yourselves, you'd have been very wealthy. And actually by putting them on your ceiling, uh, it's very much the same concept. It's a sign of wealth. Um, so there's all sorts of oranges and grapes and pomegranates in our first floor ceiling. One of the things that I have heard about our painted ceiling, particularly this this one on the first floor uh, with the fruit, is a suggestion that it contains a lot of symbolism. Could you uh, enlighten us a little bit I about that? can. I should add that this is absolutely a theory. Uh, so we actually don't know a huge amount about who painted the ceilings, um, who put them in. Because the three seem to have been painted by the same person, it's likely that Gladstone commissioned them because they seem to have gone in around the time that he was building the front extension on the property. And because they're over three different apartments, um, it's unlikely that the tenants commissioned them themselves. It's most likely that the building owner, that Gladstone, commissioned them. Um, But beyond that, we actually don't have any record of, of who it was that painted them. 
Now, there has been a theory that there might be some hidden religious symbolism in the first floor ceiling. It's been suggested that um, all of those fruits I've talked about, and we've also got some flowers in there, um, have quite strong religious iconographies associated with them. Um, The problem is that this is Catholic symbolism and this is post-Reformation in Scotland. Uh, And I mean, there are some things that you can put in favour of that. Um, Bessie Cunningham, um, Gladstone's wife, does come from a Catholic family. Um, And we know that there has been hidden religious symbolisms in other properties. Um, But beyond sort of circumstantial evidence and um, some sort of iconographies that that you can apply, there is no real evidence to support it as a theory. But it's quite a nice idea. The ceiling includes, you said, fruit and uh, vegetables and and various exotic plants. And so one of the suggestions is that there's grapes and ears of corn to represent the the Eucharist or the Mm -hmm. Mass. Um, there's a rose, which yes. is apparently a symbol for the BVM, the, the Blessed Virgin Mary. It is, yes. Um, and then also there are... The, uh, a, the, oranges, a, the oranges are which, used to replace apples um, um, because the apple a, became a very... Uh, yes, absolutely. Um, um, but as you quite rightly say, they could very well just be... Um, and these sort of... You do see these sort of fruits and flowers and particularly um, ears of, of wheat Um cropping up in a lot of these ceilings. You also see them in a lot of tapestries of the period. Mm. Um, so it is possible that the, these emblems were just taken from a, a, a book of ideas, that the, the ideas came off tapestries, or, or that they are just, um, you know, showing off they're just about wealth. So it, there is no... It, it, it's not a definitive theory. Very much as we said in... As Nicole said in our episode on Mary, Queen of Scots, there was very definitely residual Catholicism, mm-hmm. particularly among the... The elite, the the ruling class, um, that you would have people who didn't, um, who who held on to their Catholicism a lot uh, longer than they were supposed to have done, but it was definitely not not something you saw in public. Mm-hmm. So that's the idea, anyway. If this theory is true, then it would have um, to be fairly subtle. Yeah, it was a sort of a secret sign mm-hmm. of your Catholicism, um, but who knows. Um, the the painted ceiling, I, I believe we've got the discovery story is quite interesting. Um, is that? Yeah, so we didn't actually, they didn't actually know any of them were there in the 1930s when they bought the property. The same goes for the wall painting, which we have from the same date, and also the panelling in the Georgian room. Uh, so the property was built without um was bought without any of the knowledge of of any of that remaining and it wasn't until they actually started renovation works that they rediscovered them all the national trust for scotland has in the past produced a rather good book on the painted ceilings of scotland um and there we have some pictures actually of of the renovation where you can see quite clearly that there were um there's uh, 18th or 19th century plaster that has been put over the or put mm-hmm. on top of the ceilings and i suppose that must have been rather decayed and when it was stripped off they said oh my goodness we've got these um historic gems underneath and you so, can uh, you can actually see with the, the the beams that just protrude slightly further they're the ones that have lost their paintwork off them because they're clearly the ones that were closest mm-hmm. to the plaster that was put over the top so um how lucky we are I know. That, um, that they were there so so there you go and and that is that's very much one of the things as we said both in the history books and then also in uh, in modern guides um, that's that's what that's one of Gladstone's mm-hmm. big selling points very much so, so. We have these these beautiful ceilings and uh, unfortunately um Audio is good at many things, listeners, <laughs> but uh, describing uh, art is not one of them. You'll have to come and visit for you yourself. You'll have to come and see the painted ceilings for yourself. So, so that's that. Other than um, other than painted ceilings, um, this is episode. As I said, we're going to we're going to talk a bit about conservation. Mm-hmm. That is um, some of the things that the National Trust does at Gladstone's Land to care for the building and some of the artefacts that that we have on display and so in a little bit we're going to talk to Miranda our in-house conservationist about some of the things that she 
she gets up to. And what? obviously she's, of course, responsible for our painted ceilings oh. and ensuring that they're clean and um, that we that we chart any damage on them. And I'm sure she'll be able to tell us a little bit more about what she does relating to those. And we're also going to speak to Alethea Sancho, uh, a member of staff at Gladstone's Land, who is going to tell us a little bit about the foreign language programme we have at Gladstone's Land. Mm-hmm. So um, that's quite a lot to get on with. So <laughs> let's get on with it. Right. Now, in the theme of this episode, which is focusing more on some of the some, some of the things that the National Trust does at Gladstone's Land, we are delighted to be joined by our in-house conservationist. Oh, no, is that too? <laughs> is that the uh, wrong title? <laughs> is that too much? I don't know. Um, <laughs> sure. What would you call yourself? Uh, someone who looks after the collection. <laughs> Right. Well, we're delighted to be joined by uh, Miranda, <laughs> who, who looks after our collection. Um, and so thank you very much for, for being here on the Gladstone's Land podcast. Thanks for having me. Could you give us an idea of what sorts of things that you do on a day-to-day basis? Mm, yes. So um, I do a lot of mitigative conservation cleaning. <laughs> what is that? <laughs> it's cleaning of old things. And uh, the idea is that by cleaning things regularly, uh, you can keep keep a handle on how much dust there is and make sure that things aren't um, tarnishing or getting a really big buildup of dust, which can uh, really impact them over time. Um, so I do a lot of dusting uh, of old things. And so what what sort of things do you dust? Are we talking about um, there's there's obviously the, the the fabric of the building itself that we've got our obviously we know about our famous ceilings. Um, mm. There's the, the floors and the walls and all the and there's various bits of furniture in the in the museum. Is that what we're talking about? Yeah. So some things will need more to be cared for more often than others. So obviously anything that's horizontal and near where people go will get really dusty so that's where I spend most of my time but then uh, other areas like the ceilings for example you do still need to look at periodically but it would be a lot less often and you don't want to disturb it or touch it too often so that might be a if if once a year if that or something something like that and we've just done our big spring clean haven't we for the year yes yeah so uh like a lot of national trust properties we do a deep clean which is just about trying to get to all of the parts of the house that you can't do on a regular basis for whatever reason um doing all of the walls and all of the regular ceilings um and behind things and inside things and uh yeah, so it was great to have so many volunteers help out with that. And uh, it's a big undertaking once you start. <laughs> Did you find anything particularly uh, noteworthy? Particularly noteworthy. We found a lot of keys that we didn't know about. <laughs> keys that were hidden inside things or uh, keys that we had in a big bag of keys uh, but didn't know that they fit anything or what they fit so that was some of those have been identified now haven't yes they? <laughs> and labeled and <laughs> um, we also well i was the one bit i was involved in doing was um we took the um the beautiful bed cover that we have mm-hmm. on the bed the embroidery mm. off um and cleaned that and cleaned the bedding and it was it was absolutely lovely to see it sort of off the bed but obviously it was a huge process moving very old fabric like that yeah it, it is and it is nice to see things close up and from different angles and that's one of the perks about volunteer volunteering on deep clean is that you get to see things more intimately but yeah it takes a lot of planning like Kate said and a lot of logistical if we move this here will there be room for this and what to what tools do we need do we have enough vacuum cleaners etc <laughs> tell, tell us more because I was fascinated by this I, I don't come from a collections background and I was fascinated by this idea of museum vacuum cleaners <laughs> tell us a bit more about that <laughs> There's not that much to tell, but <laughs> a museum vac is just... How, how does it differ from a normal vacuum cleaner? Uh, it's got a variable a variable suction, so you can put it very low so that it wouldn't um, harm anything. And we always put a, a mesh over the nozzle so that you can't suck up anything important into the vacuum cleaner. And <laughs> so it's just We use them quite a lot, so it's quite difficult if you only have one. <laughs> 
That's just, you, you, last thing you want to do is to suck up something of vital importance, mm. sort of a, um, mm. a 16th century teaspoon into the <laughs> or, or even things that you might not think of as, um, or one might not think of as terribly important, like flakes of paint or a thread or something like that. If you're doing that every year, then you'll mm. soon have a threadbare chair or whatever. Do you do anything with paint, for instance? Do you touch up the the green walls in the the Georgian room or <laughs> no uh, so I, I don't personally do any any of those right. kind of a things we do have a central uh, conservator um, and several we the national we trust. the national trust for Scotland yes um, and there's a condition assessment process or if things get damaged or anything it will go to this person and they will decide how best to deal with it if they need to fix it or whatever. So it will be people who are trained as conservators, which I personally am not, who do the fixing. (laughs) And it's always done in a way that you could undo it if you needed to. If it's a really Mm -hmm. significant object, you don't want to actually cause more damage to it by gluing it wrongly or... (laughs) I've heard that either in different countries they they have quite different priorities on how to conserve um, some historic fabric. I've heard that in Italy, for instance, they're quite keen on on doing quite extensive conservation so that it they get something that actually looks as it would have done, or maybe even better than it would have done, mm. even if that means that you're fundamentally changing the object. Whereas here we're more cautious. Is that yeah? Right? They, they are. The quote that you'll often hear people who work in collections or conservation say is that you need to do as much as necessary but as little as possible to look after the collection. So you're not trying to um, fundamentally change the object, but you're just trying to make sure it doesn't get worse. (laughs) Or, um, yeah, and even within the National Trust for Scotland... Uh, there's different philosophies of different properties or different aims in how they look after their collections. So some properties uh, keep things uh, exactly as they were, Mm -hmm. and that might not be in perfect, inverted commas, condition. Um, And some properties try and make things seem like you're stepping into the past So and the things were new at the time. Mm -hmm. Um, So there's different different ways of doing it. So, and how did you end up here? What's your background? Um, so, I'm an archaeologist. Mm. Uh, that's what I studied. But I spent many years volunteering in various museums and doing kind of behind the scenes, looking after objects, uh, kind of a kind of a role there. Um, so that's how I got into collections. But of course, that's different again because it's not a working collection that's on display. It's sort of behind the scenes. So I've mm-hmm. learned quite a lot by being at Gladstone's Land. And our collection is a little bit different, I suppose, in that respect. In that yeah. most of it is working collection, and it does, you know, some of it does get handled regularly. Yeah, and, and so I suppose it's different priorities. It definitely it is, and um, a lot of the stuff that we have. Uh, we have partly so that people can engage with it and can sort of think, oh, if I were in the 17th century and in this room, what do I feel like to be here? And um, so, yeah, there's definitely a different a different kettle of fish. But before... But you... I was going to say, although that does, you know, sometimes bring its problems, we have this, I've just mentioned it's beautiful bedspread from mm. the early 1600s and we've had a lot of trouble recently with people just sitting on it mm. which hurts my soul <laughs> yeah. so it does it, you know it, it has to it, it's brilliant that people can come and engage in it but it also means that we have to find quite constructive ways to mm. to protect the items yeah. that still do need protecting yes definitely yeah and try and direct people to interact with the things that it, they can and mm. not with the things they can't mm. i suppose that it must be quite tempting for for people to sit on a bed if it's there particularly as there are some Mm, things that they're allowed to touch yeah um but that's a whole um process that we've gone through to try and arrange things in a way that um you know people can oh don't know how to say it you know so people are sort of directed to the objects they can yeah yeah, they engage with what you want without having lots of you know don't touch this signs which Mm, sort of isn't very period is it Mm. Mm. You um, you said that in previous places you've worked with um, other kinds of collections of sort mm. of art- artifacts and objects that are not on display 
all the time. Um, what sort of things have you uh, have you been involved with there? Um, a, a big part of what I did was actually looking after human remains. <laughs> oh, gosh. I suppose that ties in with the archaeology. Yeah, yeah. So how you look after bones and things when they're in a storeroom in a museum and make sure that they don't just crumble away and yeah it's a and obviously the ethical implications of that Mm. but I also um did a a bit with ceramics and lots of different bits and pieces there I was thinking about Roman coins but no (laughs) no well one or two of those (laughs) yes um so I I think that's that's given us a really good sense actually Mm -hmm. of, of of one of the things that goes on behind the scenes here because pe- visitors will come to Gladstone's and they'll walk around the, the building and they'll they'll interact with the tour guides um, and they'll see the objects but they don't necessarily think of all that, that takes place um, mm. to, to keep the museum looking as beautiful as it does. So thank you very much for, for sharing that. Oh, with well, us. you're welcome. <laughs> um, our, our, our last question, and of course, really, the the, the most, most important, most important person absolutely. is um, you, you've heard of our, our historical uh, uh, fictional dinner party where each guest we've had on the podcast invites three uh, characters from, from history or from current affairs or from fiction or people that they would like to meet. Um, so uh, do, who, 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 who have you brought to, uh, to add to our dinner party? Okay, so my three people. All right. Um, so the first one would be a woman who is called Alessandra Gilani, who is reported to have been the first female anatomist. Um, so where was she based? In Italy, in uh, sort of the 1300s. But ah. the reason I would invite her is because there's a lot of debate about whether she existed or not, and I would like it if she did exist. <laughs> um, because that's very early. <laughs> So she was the first female anatomist that we know about, mm. who um, you know did did dissections and things. And this was a period when they didn't know all that much about the human body and were finding a lot out about it. And um, so, if she existed, very very important person who we don't talk about enough. And I suppose um, as there's debate as to whether she existed or not, um, if she received an invitation to come to this dinner party and and she turned up, then that would confirm her exactly. existence. Exactly, yeah, then I would know. Yes. <laughs> Whereas if only two of your guests turned up, then we'd know that she wasn't real. Mm. So Perhaps. Good plan, uh, yeah. <laughs> that's a bit metaphysical. Okay, no, that's... <laughs> or that she, you know... That's, that's brilliant. Um, who, who else? Who, who, who else? <laughs> so my second guest would be Dame Kathleen Kenyon, who conducted uh, large-scale excavations at ancient Jericho. Um, because she was a total badass and just was all over it in in a period where what um, sort of date is that uh, Jericho so it was um, so I think Paleolithic all the way until Roman like it's a very continuously and Dame Catherine Kenyon is early 20th century she's uh, the excavations I think started in 1952 Uh, okay Um, so we've had um, Dame Catherine Kenyon Mm -hmm. and the, the third. The third one I really struggled with because I couldn't think of another historic figure, and I didn't want to pull the card of just inviting someone who can cook really well, which is <laughs> oh, what no I can. No one's done that yet, so that would be a, a Ooh, really. Hmm. Well, I, I didn't look. I didn't think to look up a historical chef, <laughs> but um, maybe I'd invite you, Thomas, because you've been delightful. <laughs> oh dear! I think he's already coming. I don't think you could. Uh, well, you weren't anything. invited before now. <laughs> Um, but a historical chef, I mean, um, you could... Oh, what was the, um, the the woman? I know a lot of the early cookbooks were men, um, but... Ju- Julia Child. Julia Child. No, she, she, she's I mean, to much be. earlier. Hannah, Hannah Woolley? Hannah, she was one of the early women to write a cookery book. Oh, I don't um, know. She might be a good call. So is it but M- I don't Mrs. know about... Um, Mrs. Beaton. <laughs> Mrs. Beaton. <laughs> Not early enough. Would, would, she, uh, would, would she be I mean, a good guest? I, th- I feel like she would be terrifying. I would be very, very scared of Mrs. Beaton. But the problem is that a lot of... You know when you read these mm-hmm. medieval recipe mm-hmm. books, for example... I don't know that I would enjoy eating no, quite a things. lot of the things. in. Although the ones that are just almonds and 
sugar. But now some of them are pretty okay, grim. But mm. I'm trying to. I'm racking my mind here for a. Um, no, I, I'm struggling to think of a, a medieval cook. Henry VIII introduced the punishment for poisoning um, was uh, to be boiled alive. Ooh. There's a story that a, um, a a cook was cross with her master, so uh, when he had a, a, a a dinner party she poisoned the food and uh, several members of the party died um, and this story got all the way back to the king and he said um, hanging is too good for the woman I want you to take her cooking pot and have her boiled alive in her own pot Oof. and the story goes that for several years after that the punishment for poisoning was boiling alive is, is the water boiling when they put you in or is it cold when you get oh, put I, in I, I and, don't, don't want it's to a bit of a hot the frog thing then. it's pretty grim either way isn't it i mean it is um, but i think people i think are, it's important to know these people bowls. are more sophisticated than frogs aren't they so they would probably work it out, work it out. <laughs> work out what was going on i'd like to think so <laughs> what was the name of your first person um alessandro gilani um, if i'm saying it right at all Gilani. Um Dame Catherine Kenyon. Kathleen, who was a total badass, fantastic person, especially in a time when um, there were not all that many acknowledged female archaeologists, and she just totally ran this massive, very widely known dig. Um, so that's uh, uh, Alessandra Gilani, Dame Kathleen Kenyon, and... Henry VIII's cook, or, uh, Mrs. <laughs> I mean, Beaton. But you've invited them. Yeah, no, this is This is my dinner party. Yeah, well, and I she's invited you. I didn't so, want to uh, say me. Are you bringing two guests with you to my dinner party? Oh, I, I sorry. I thought we were talking about um, in our in our version, everybody is coming to the same party. Um, oh, mine's so a bit more exclusive. I'm already there. <laughs> oh, so you're giving me a personal invitation yeah. to this five-person party? Kate's not invited. Oh, I know. I know. Well, I noticed that. <laughs> then that uh, in that case, uh, then I'd be delighted to accept. Well. Uh, well, um, Miranda, this has been a truly enlightening and uh, enjoyable interview. <laughs> mm. Thank you very much. I'm going to be sulking for a little bit, Whoa. just so we're clear. <laughs> you can come the next time. Okay. <laughs> And we're very glad to be joined now by our second interview of this episode, uh, uh, Alithia. So welcome to the Gladstones Land podcast. Thank you. The, in this episode, we're talking a little bit, um, not so much about historical uh, a historical topic so much as we're, we're going back to what the, what the National Trust does here at Gladstones Land. And one of the exciting things that you've been working on as a member of staff here is expanding our foreign language yeah. program could yeah. you tell us a little bit about that yeah well everything started because when i first start, started working here in Glastonsland, i was offered to do guided tours in english and i was very scared of that so i thought what can i do entirely to unnecessarily <laughs> well but uh, yeah um as i say i wasn't very happy with the idea of doing them in english because i wasn't very confident so i thought what can I offer instead? So I don't feel that bad for not doing this, but at the same time, I'm, you know, contributing to this job. So, yeah, I, I talked to Anna and I said, why don't I try to do the tours in Spanish as I'm Spanish and I speak the language quite well. And she says, yes, it's very exciting. <laughs> <laughs> I can't hear you now, but <laughs> yeah. So, yeah, um, I just started translating the whole speech and it took about two weeks I think to have everything ready and yeah it's been quite nice actually it's something different but yeah do you have a lot of interest are there not are they you've done quite a few Spanish yeah. tours well at the beginning I have to say that it was quite difficult because first of all Spanish people don't know this place very well mm -hmm. so when you say this place do you mean Edinburgh Glastonland. or Glastonland. No, Edinburgh, yeah. oh, Edinburgh is super trendy now. I don't know what happens, but everyone wants to travel to Edinburgh from Spain now. Mm. Yeah, um, what I find is 
first of all, the National Trust is not something that we know very well in Spain because we don't have something similar. Like this kind mm. of uh, institution that is a charity and it manages historical and you know natural environments. So for us, it's difficult to understand that kind of uh, concept. Mm-hmm. And also, yeah, well, uh, as many people from here, they don't know Gladstone's Land is a museum, so it's quite difficult for them. Um, but yeah, yeah, it's been getting more famous with them. Um, picking up, hasn't it? You've had quite yeah. a few people through, and I think that's only going to continue as we head into sort of peak season. There seems to be a, an yeah. increasing amount of interest. And I think part of that is also because you've been doing some work to publicise that. It... Yeah, I was doing my best on Instagram. <laughs> They're like, come on! Yeah, uh, also there's been many people that they came to the tours and I was uh, talking to them about TripAdvisor and all this, and they were very happy to put a review saying that we also do tours in Spanish and they liked it, blah, blah, blah. So that also helped helped a lot uh, yeah. you've also linked up with a local blogger as well haven't oh you? yeah that was super nice that day was great so I contacted three of the Spanish bloggers that live in Edinburgh and they do but they, they promote Scotland but not only like from a touristic kind of way they also do like historical things like they explain the history of people from Scotland that are not maybe so famous in Spain and it's really interesting so I thought why don't we contact them and invite them for a tour and see what mm. happens? And yeah, it's actually nice because now we keep talking sometimes and they're really lovely. And they helped us a lot with, you know, the promotion and mm. all this. Wow, that's great. Yeah. That's brilliant. I, one of the things that I always think we have a very bad reputation for in Britain is learning other languages. <laughs> and Very true. So I, you always think... It's, I'm always so impressed when you go to museums abroad and the, the English language presentation mm-hmm. is just as good as their um, their own language. And you find that you, you, you find that so often in France or Germany or wherever it is. And so a little I'm, bit embarrassing sometimes. It is embarrassing, <laughs> yeah. yes. So I'm delighted to hear that uh, you are helping us do our bit... Uh, I'm happy to help with that, actually. It's very he- easy for me. It's not like, you know, as I said before, with the English, it's like, way easier. So. And actually, since we've put in the Spanish tours and um, we've got translations into Spanish, um, we've actually got some Italian ones now yeah. up and running as well. So we've got oh. an Italian volunteer who has um, taken this idea from Alethea onwards and um, has been developing things in Italian. Oh, well, so go. it continues. Look at that. We are doing yeah. well here. And you said that... Edinburgh is very trendy yeah. in Spain. Why do you think that is? I don't know. I don't have a clue. I think I was thinking of this the other day because um, I always, when there's someone that comes to the shop and they are Spanish, I always have a chat with them, you know, just to speak Spanish a little bit because I can't speak Spanish here. And they, I always ask them where they are from, and uh, yeah, I think they have started flying from different cities to Edinburgh that they didn't fly before. Mm. So, for example, with Ryanair, you can go to uh, Valencia, I think it is, and Sevilla in the south. So you find more people from those cities that come here because, of course, it's easier for them and maybe also cheap. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, I think that's why. Also, it's something, I don't know if it's Scottish history or maybe because Mary Queen of Scots being on the cinema and all ah, this stuff. Right, yeah, maybe. I don't know. I'm still waiting for Ryanair to put a flight from my city to here because they will never do that and it's quite frustrating. But Fingers crossed. One day maybe, <laughs> we'll see. But yeah. Are there particular things that Spanish visitors are interested in finding out that, that, aren't, <laughs> that, that aren't necessarily what, uh, what, what our other visitors want to know? You mean in the tours? Or yeah. Uh, yeah what well, what the, questions do they ask? The main question is... So why why are you in Edinburgh? Why are you living here? <laughs> because at the end of the tours, I always say, do you have any questions about, of course, the building? And they always say, oh, yeah, so why are you living in Edinburgh? <laughs> like, well, <laughs> I meant about the tour, but... Yeah, they ask me that. They um, they are very interested about the history of the, uh, the city itself. Because mm-hmm. when we do the tours at the beginning, we always explain about, yeah, the history of the Royal Mile and the mm-hmm. old town and all this. And... I have to say that it's easier for me in my tours because, of course, people that are not from here, they don't know as much, as much from the history as mm-hmm. people from here might know. So it's very basic, the level. So Now, in general, people just 
they, or maybe they have done some free tours before and they have they explain them about yeah the old town all the closes and all these things and actually you get some nice um fun facts from them that maybe you didn't know before like the first time uh, I found that the map of Edinburgh we have upstairs the one from 1640 something 7 1647 47 yeah <laughs> I was reading that the other day that's but, why <laughs> very good year <laughs> yeah, so it's 1600s, <laughs> you can say. Uh, I actually found that that map has the shape of a fish, because someone told me in the mm-hmm. tour. I didn't notice that before, and I was looking at the map every day. So, yeah, these kind of things that are funny. In, uh, in the early modern period, one of the nicknames of Edinburgh was the Herringbone City. Oh, really? Because I did not know that. Me neither. You but to, it does look like a fish. You, yeah, you, had the, you have the castle at the top, yeah. which is the head of the herringbone. The Royal Mile is the spine. And then all of the little roads are, yeah, are the, the, the other bones. And for listeners, Thomas is currently drawing us a diagram of that. <laughs> <laughs> you can obviously Google it. <laughs> um, but yes, I think um, Her- Herringbone City was ah. one of the things that it used to be called. Never so heard that before. There you are. Yeah. Um, your, you, you said that um, one of the questions that you often get asked is, what are you doing in Edinburgh? Yeah. <laughs> and that actually preempts one of the things that, that we were going to ask, uh, not in an accusatory sense, of course. <laughs> but, um, do, you want, you do, you, do you want to tell us a little bit about how you ended up here and how you ended up at Gladstone's Land as well? Yeah. So um, I first came here on 2016, I think it was, yeah, September 2016. And it was because I, I finished my studies, my master's in 2015. Mm-hmm. And I always had this, um, I always felt sad because I couldn't go and study abroad for a while, like the Erasmus program or anything like that. So I thought, well, now that I'm finished and I still don't have a job or anything, I'm going to try to go abroad for a while and see what I can do. I don't know, an adventure. So I started applying for grants to do internships and these things. And I was very lucky that I got one. Now I know I was very lucky, but back then when I got my name on the list, I was basically scared, like, you can imagine, well, maybe you can't, but I was super, super scared. I didn't want to come, basically. But yeah, it was nice. It was nice in the end. I really enjoyed those three months. Um, I was in a charity called People Know How. It's quite nice. They do social projects and things like that. And now I'm here for more than a year and a half. So, yeah. Very good. And Glastons Land, um, I have to say that I always wanted to work in a museum, mm-hmm. but I always thought that I wasn't able to, so I wasn't really like applying very well. Like I don't know why. Like I studied history, and I'm completely able to do this job. I thought I wouldn't. Ah, yeah. Well, there you go. We're, yeah. we're delighted that you um, that that it all worked out, and you managed me to too. be here. Thank you. <laughs> the um, the last the well the, the penultimate thing that mm-hmm. we need to discuss is that. Um, as part of your very exciting program of uh, expanding our our our, uh, yeah. our um, uh, operations into Spanish, <laughs> we're also going to have a Spanish episode on the podcast, aren't Hopefully, we? Hopefully, yes. <laughs> um, that's going to come out in in a few weeks. It won't be one of the regular fortnightly episodes, so it'll be a special listeners a spanish special like an extra one um mm-hmm. what do you want to give a quick uh plug or pitch about some of the things that you might talk about on that so that yeah. if any of our listeners are spanish speakers or, <laughs> or they know someone, know someone oh, yeah. who is then they can recommend it yeah so um yeah so there's uh, some people here actually that volunteer or work that we are spanish we are making us <laughs> quite a spanish community isn't that? yeah <laughs> So, yeah, we are taking the space little by little. <laughs> no, it's a joke. Well, it's actually a lot of Spanish people in Edinburgh, so it wouldn't be surprising. Anyway, um, yeah, so there's three people in total that we are Spanish, and I thought that it would be nice just to have a little chat with them on the microphone and just, you know, like, to yeah, for Spanish people to maybe know some fun facts about Glaston's land and I don't know, maybe we can talk about a bit of the history of Edinburgh, history of the building, I don't know. Mm. Like an introduction more or less. Absolutely. Well I think yeah. it sounds brilliant mm-hmm. and I'm really looking forward to listening to it. Um, <laughs> we translate being, being guided through it. Um, <laughs> and of course the final question, a most important question really, is about the famous Gladstone's Land dinner party. Um, I 
believe you've um, you've listened to some of the previous episodes. All of them. All of them. Well, <laughs> as I'm the uh, biggest, biggest fan, yeah. <laughs> um, and so you know the sort of people who have been invited along so far. This yeah. uh, just for the listeners' benefit who haven't uh, heard any of our episodes before. This is um, which three people would uh, our guest like to invite to a fictional. Uh, uh, dinner party where they can uh, hear some of their life stories. Which three historical figures? So, uh, Alithia, what uh, what have you got for us? Okay, so first of all, I need to say this one because I was super annoying about this person when I was in university. I was the biggest fan of this historical person. Not for anything special, but it is uh, Caesar Augustus, I think you call him in English. Yes. Um. So... The first Roman emperor. Exactly, yes, yeah. Right. Um, so I think what well, he was very big because uh, he just took that really big empire that still today we think it was one of the biggest empires in history and that happened 2,000 years ago. And I just think that the way he managed to do that is just impressive. He's supposed to be the the, the most important figure in Roman history, really, yeah, isn't definitely. he? Because the whole century before his reign was constant civil war and turmoil and yeah. he was the one either either by circumstance or through strength of some kind of something in his personality that yeah. meant he was able to to stop all that yeah. and he he went from this horrible period of civil war to creating the the pax romana yeah that's know, what that, i was gonna say this yeah. this great period of, of peace and prosperity yeah i think also he managed to just put himself first like making everyone think that oh yeah we have a peaceful time everything's great but you know i'm gonna be the augustus i'm gonna be like almost the god so yeah we are all fine you know what i mean like it was everyone was getting benefit from it no well this is brilliant i'm delighted to have augustus at the party i think he would be a great addition mm-hmm. um and good to have some some uh, Roman characters, you know, I'm I'm no, on board with that. <laughs> okay, so we've had Augustus. Yeah, um, I also thought that it would be good to have someone that has travelled a lot, and I thought of Marco Polo. Is that how you say the name mm-hmm. in English? Yeah. Yes. Yeah, I don't really know a lot about him because I is not a period of history that I was very interested in. But I think like even today, it's very interesting to hear stories about people that has been traveling so imagine the i think it was the 14th century or 13th century i don't know middle ages <laughs> it's very i don't know i think it would be really cool to hear his stories about all his trips and what he found and how he felt when he went there for the first time and all this so oh, i think that's great mm-hmm. yeah. okay and the third the third one is not very famous but i had to put someone from spain here of course of course <laughs> Uh, it's actually a lady that came from a village called Paniza in the province or where I'm from, um, in Aragon. And she was basically, um, she was a historian. She started, she studied in my uni, actually. She was studied history in my uni, same as me. So it's quite nice. And she made the first Spanish, well, use of Spanish language dictionary. Oh. And what the funny fact, the fun fact is that she didn't make it when she was working, like it was her job. She did it when she was uh, in her free time, basically. Mm. She used to work in a library, I think it was in a school of engineers in Madrid. Mm-hmm. And while she was uh, on yeah, her free time, she used to write the words that she knew from, that she heard from people or like she saw in books and things like that and just wrote all the definitions and all this. And... Sad story is that she, in Spain we have the Spanish Royal Academy, which is the institution that manages everything about language and dictionaries and all Mm -hmm. this. I imagine you have something similar here. So um, she was recommended to be part of it in 1917, but it's not official, this is not the official version of course, but... We all think that because she was a woman, she didn't get to be part of that um, institution, and they chose someone else instead, which is quite sad because she did a really big job. Like we still use that dictionary today, and she made it in fifteen or sixties last century. So, 
Yeah, I really admire her. I think she, she was very brave addition. doing that. Yeah. What, what was what? her name? Oh, Maria Moliner. I didn't say the name. Sorry, Maria <laughs> Moliner. Yeah. I really want to. I was just thinking about it. Actually, I think I, I'm going to go away and write some little scenes between some of these characters that we've we've got at the dinner party. We should do that on the last. Oh episode. yes, please. <laughs> I think, um, that's a that's a really good addition. Both someone who is uh, interested in history and yeah. in the promoting history and also um, uh, another in our line of, of very strong um, women very strong women Yay. and actually um, quite appropriate for the National Trust too because she did it all as a volunteer so <laughs> there you are of course yeah <laughs> um, what a great list uh, the yes, Emperor yeah. Augustus Marco Polo and Maria Molina Moliner Moliner M- there you go. how do you spell it? Uh, M-O-L-I-N-E-R ah, Moliner. Maria Moliner from yeah. Zaragoza. Yeah. There you go. There you go. Well, um, uh, Alicia, thank you very much. Well, thank you. Great. I really enjoyed this. It was really a fun. Thanks for talking to us. Thank you. A bumper episode today. Mm-hmm. Two interviews for the price of one. <laughs> um, uh, so, uh, well, I certainly feel lucky. And a lot I, of information. Uh, a lot yes. of information. Your emails now, yes. um, and we've had we, we we've had uh, a regular listener who uh, get in touch. This is Hillary from Edinburgh, who notes that we made a mistake oh, in episode I never three. like to make mistakes. I've um, been sulking about this all morning. Uh, yes, uh, we don't like to make mistakes, and much less on air. Um, but, so we're sorry. Uh, but we um, don't anyone ever say that we don't uh, like to correct. Own, own up to our mistakes. Own up to our mistakes. Yeah. Um, Hillary notes that uh, we said in episode three that old Ricky, that the nickname of or one of Edinburgh's nicknames, mm-hmm. uh, comes from the fact that Edinburgh was very smelly. Uh, but apparently it, in fact, refers to smoke rather than smell. Mm-hmm. Um, we, we've found that, that reek is the Scots word for smoke. That is both uh, smoke the noun, um, as in there's a lot of smoke about today, and um, that chimney is smoking. And actually, in our defence, <laughs> uh, reek actually um, originates with the same word that uh, smell comes from, to reek, to smell bad. Um, and they seem to have the same etymology going back. But in Scots, mm. it comes to mean smoke, whereas um, the English take it on to mean smell. Um, and that is perhaps where the confusion has emerged. I think you can see how they do fit together, don't they? That it's all about bad air, isn't it? And yes. um, in the... In the medieval mind view, um, illness was caused by bad air. Uh, air that smelt bad was therefore unhealthy. And of course, this is why the plague doctors had the big long masks mm. that they filled th- full of herbs to protect themselves from bad air. And so you would, su- we would suggest that that r- smoke does smell bad. Mm-hmm. So therefore, but anyway, apparently um, Edinburgh... Because it was so tightly packed, uh, which is something we, we, we referred to in episode three, because it was very densely populated, they were burning a lot of coal in very close proximity. And so there was more coal smoke above uh, Edinburgh than most other places. And certainly than the surrounding area, which is quite rural. Yeah, exactly. And so there's a lot of coal smoke. There's a, um, apparently, as as indeed our listener Hillary uh suggested um there's a hogmanay or wedding expression uh, lang may your lung reek uh, or long may your chimney smoke um that is to say we wish you good luck and uh, that sort of thing um but uh, we have a number of other allusion uh, mentions of this as well uh, walter scott in his novel the abbot uh, includes a character saying yonder stands old Ricky. You may see the smoke hover over her at 20 miles distance. Um, so there you go. Um, we're sorry. We're sorry. Uh, we all won't make that mistake again. <laughs> we'll not do it again. Actually, um, I was looking, I was thinking, trying to look, think of other um, literary references to Old Reiki, and it does come up in a lot of old um, Scots poems. Mm-hmm. Um, but most recently, I remembered um, it was in um, J.K. Rowling's most recent 
book, not book, but play, the um, the, the Harry Potter and the Cursed Child. Not Remember seen that? it. There's a very... I, I haven't seen it, but I read it, mm-hmm. and um, I'm sure it was a good play in the theatre. Apparently there was a lot of magic and illusion. I'm quite sad I haven't seen it, actually. But um, there was there's one scene where they're in a railway station, uh, Harry and Ron. No, it's not Harry and Ron, is it? It's uh, Albus and whoever. Anyway, it doesn't matter. The two main <laughs> characters are in a Scottish railway station and they ask the guard for the train to Edinburgh and he says, oh, you mean the old Reeky train? <laughs> um, Does anybody use it like that anymore? I could... I, I sort of cringed when I read that <laughs> bit as if um, here's... For the tourists. Yes, here, here's JK trying to put in a little reference to her beloved uh, adopted <laughs> hometown. But there you go. Old Reeky is old smoky, not as... <laughs> And as we pointed out earlier, obviously London takes a similar name, gets the big smoke, so it does make yeah, sense. Yeah, obviously cities were famously smoky, mm-hmm. um, so, so there you go. Uh, Hillary, we apologise. <laughs> and there you have it, episode seven of the Gladstones Land podcast. I hope you enjoyed it. Um, I'm sorry about the sound quality on this episode. I know that um, we had some problems with the recording equipment during uh, Miranda's interview and then there was some um, some feedback issue during uh, Alethea's interview so I apologise about that. I very much hope you enjoyed this podcast and that you enjoyed the uh, the previous episodes. If you enjoyed the podcast please do uh, rate, review uh, uh, subscribe to the podcast so that you get it um, downloaded repeatedly every time there's a new episode and, and please do tell your friends about the podcast if you have anyone who you know who you think would be interested to to uh, to hear it please do pass the message along I think these things these things spread best through through word of mouth I've recently begun listening on my brother's recommendation to the Peter Crouch podcast with Radio 5 Live and although I'm not actually that interested in football, I have been enjoying it um, because it's uh, about all sorts of other things as well. But anyway, he he says uh, they they seem to have coined the term "pass the pod," that is to to tell other people about the podcast, and that being the best way to spread the word. So I do encourage uh, anyone listening to this who who enjoys it and knows other people who who you think would enjoy it to please pass the pod because you remember that one of the reasons we're doing this is to spread the word uh, and increase the impact of of what the National Trust for Scotland can do at Gladstone's Land and so the more people know about this the more uh, the more uh, the more impact uh, the, the the National Trust is having and you'll all be doing your part in that as well so there we are Thank you very much for listening. Um, I should say again, if you do want to get in touch about anything, if you have any comments, questions, if you'd like to have something read out on the podcast or you just want to get in touch and say hello, then the email address is gladstonesland at nts.org.uk. And if you put podcast in the subject, that will get through to us. So there we have it. I don't think there's anything else to do but wind up. So... You've been listening to the Gladstones Land podcast with me, Thomas Ware, and my co-host, Kate Stevenson. It was produced by me with support from the National Trust for Scotland. Our guests this week were Miranda Evans and Alithia Sancho. The music, as always, is Dabile's Apollinaris Inclicti, performed by the Tudor Consort and licensed under Creative Commons. You can find Gladstones Land on Facebook, Twitter and Instagram and online at www.nts.org.uk slash gladstones hyphen land. Thank you very much for listening and we'll see you next time. <laughs>